Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Warren. So this week on the podcast, we have the unbelievable Gavin Costick. Gavin is a playwright, he is a poet, he is a dramaturg, and he is the literary manager of Fishamble, the new play company. You'll best know Gavin's plays uh, at the Ford, the Ashfire, Fight Night, the games people play, Swing. I mean, there's so, so much of it. And he's been in touch with, I would say, the vast and I mean that, vast majority of new writing coming out of this country, which when you think about it, sounds crazy, it sounds like hyperbole, I don't think it is. If you look on like, Irish playography, anything like that, Gavin's name is attached to so many of the new plays coming out of this country, and so many of the best plays coming out of this country. It's really, really incredible, and what a pleasure it was to sit down and have the chats. As always, guys, go and check out our Patreon page. We are patreon.com forward slash personality bingo. If you are someone who gets something from this podcast, you enjoy it as a thing in your life, throw us 50 cent per episode. That makes a huge difference. That sounds like nonsense. It's actually not. It works out at €2 a month. You won't notice that at all. We'll notice it, absolutely. makes a huge difference to us, and as Blind Boy says, Patreon is a model based off soundness so go and be sound i know you are only sound people listen to this podcast i wonder who is our biggest arsehole of a listener i wonder who it is i can't really imagine that many arseholes listen to this podcast but there you go you never know if you are an arsehole i'm happy to have you still and even happier if you kick something into our patreon so guys enough of all that please enjoy the wonderful gavin caustic playing personality bingo with tom Moran. Plastic, ready to play personality bingo? I certainly am. All right, sweet. So a quick explanation of how it all works. Uh, I've got 60 balls in here, 60 minutes on the clock, and 60 corresponding questions. I've also given you a sheet of paper with five numbers on it. Would you do me a favor and read out the five? I would. I, this is the sheet of paper. It says four. Yes. 14. Okay. 27. Right. 58. Nice. Blank. Yes. 40. Lovely. Uh, would you do me another favour and fill in the blank? I Something between would. 1 and 60. I'm going to scroll very badly the number 20, which is both my daughter and my father's birthday and is my go-to random number. Nice. It's good to have a go-to number. Yeah. We were talking about the psychology of picking the random number. Like Some people go for more of a hipster one that they're like, oh, no one's thought of 58. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then some people go for, yeah, like a birthday. Some people go for number one or they'll like fly into the face. They'll go like, you know, with a 13, unlucky and bingo. They'll go for like a six, something yeah. like that. So 20 is good. Um, and I should say that if all six of them numbers do come out, that means the tables are turned and you get to ask me any question in the whole wide world and I'll give you a totally truthful answer. Okay, great. sweet. I look forward to it. All right, let's give it a spin. Hey. All right, here we go. First out the gate, we have number 33. No. No, number 33. The question is, are you the oldest, youngest, or middle child in your family? I'm the youngest, actually, although curiously, I, I had to think about that for a moment. So, yes, I have one older brother called Connor, and he is 18 months older than me. And I think my mother, when she was married, and um, my mother and father, they were told, oh, have your babies close together, uh, you know, get it all over with kind mm. of thing. And uh, she said if she had a life again, she certainly would not have done that because she ended up uh, working. She was a maths teacher and coming home. Um, her maths salary almost went on just having us minded, but it helped her progress. So she just, you know, would go first thing in the morning, see us off, collect us again, 
make sure we had tea, and she'd just be knackered for five, seven years. So her uh, older brother, quite close in age, occasionally he has the odd moment of vanity where he, you know, likes to pretend to be the younger brother, you know, because he reckons he's looks younger, but yeah. he's wrong, like, actually. <laughs> What would, uh, what do you think the psychology of growing up as the younger brother is? What yeah. effect do you think it had? Well, I mean, I've mined that a lot, uh, as much in my poetry as much as anything, but more um, possibly in, in playwriting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw him as the older brother. Mm. So if you go out on a bicycle race or you go out and play football, he was the older brother, you know, and, and, and he was he's bigger than me as well. And he was always kind of like the leader like that. And... Um, we, we fought, like, through our childhood, like, I mean, actual fights, but, I mean, I've, we, we've always liked each other, and we, uh, so I'm 53 now, um, and he's then 54, 55, and he, we live within, um, you know, half, about a mile or two of each other, yeah. and, you know, still do, and I think we have the perfect tactful relationship in that if we actually lived together, we'd probably fall out, but if we lived near each other, with our respective families, we get on really, really well, actually. Yeah, does there come a point in, you know, growing up in adulthood where you get to make that decision of, like, oh, we could actually choose to not be in each other's lives anymore, but we are making the choice yeah. to? Yeah, we, I mean, we could, and he certainly... I came to Dublin first in 1984, and he certainly came after, which altered our relationship, because in, in, then I was sort of ahead in an odd sort of way in terms of social networks and things. Mm -hmm. But behind that, there was a, a group of lads where we grew up in Chester, and there's nine of them, so there's the nine lads, and the two of us were part of that group, so we, our network is part of a larger group of lads, mm. and he's better than me at this, but we have kept in touch for 40 years, and occasionally meet up, me not so much at the moment, but it's, it's only busyness, otherwise I'd like to. So we have this larger network of which we're part, I suppose. Um, legendarily, he is, and we are the inventors of LARPing. So if your listeners know LARPing, and you can check this online, I swear, um, because in Peckfordson Castle in 1982, the first live-action role-play was set up where people dressed as orcs, goblins, Lord of the Rings, all that kind of thing. And my brother Connor invented the first rule book for that, which was like, if I have a sword with a red paint on it and I hit you, how much damage does that do? Kind of thing, you know. Wow. So it was original LARPing. So we were all into that. So the lads were very... Uh, they're absolutely lovely human beings. Would be seen as quite nerdy, I suppose, in that context, because mm. LARPing has that or had that reputation. Also, Viking recreations, stuff like that. Um, so in terms of us getting on, I think it's... We've never been um, isolated, do you know what I mean? There's always been a group, a large group, and our parents and mm. that kind of thing. Well, yeah, what's... Um, it's interesting because you, you like talk about, like, yeah, that's kind of like a stereotypically geeky thing, and then you talk about, you know, that, like, sibling rivalry of, like, the fights and all that. Mm. Like, what's, what's your relationship to... I suppose, like, you know, your own masculinity and, and within that, like, how it's affected by, you know, having a, a brother in those greater male circles that you find yourself in. How do you feel about that? And, and how is it different to maybe the way in which you'd interact with women in the world? What a great question. Um, that's, a, that's a big question. And maybe you, you, you'd um, be as well to ask the women in my life. I think, mm. um, well, we are affected by a few other things as well. One is, like I said earlier, my mother worked and she was a businesswoman, so she ran, ran quite a high-level accountancy business um, starting in the 1970s after being a maths teacher. Mm. So when things in Ireland, which is a big jump, like Waking the Feminists hit or other uh, issues like that, I, I mean, certainly, you know, like, uh, the, 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 I was brought up by a, a, a woman who 
worked, you know, and had, she had the car, she drove, my father didn't, you know, so we, all, all that was sort of already in place, you know. Um, and I think the other uh, key feature there would, I went, we went to a state school, as this, um, and a comprehensive school. It was like, um, this is more of an English thing, like Grange Hill, like it was big, 1,200, and it was boys and girls together. Mm. So I think from our very childhood, like we were in with boys and girls together. And so, I mean, I've, I've also long-term relationships with uh, female friends from that period, you know. So mm. uh, it, it, like it, it wasn't um, a male-only world in its entirety, you know. Are you, are you a sports person? Well, that, again, the masculinity is such an interesting question. Like, um, so to keep filling things in, my father was a boxer to mm. a quite high level, amateur boxer. Yeah. So he represented Ireland kind of level at uh, the first Maccabea, which was the Jewish Olympics in uh, 1948, and he's still alive. So he was a very fit man, and he, he, he a very outdoors man. Mm. But again, like if you talk about role models, like he, he could easily have been seen as a masculine model of his type, but he absolutely was very happy with my mother uh, to work, very happy to be, he wasn't so much a house husband, but to be in the house and be present and to, to do things around the house. So he was, um, you know, it was, it was a great childhood, really enjoyable. Um, I personally did ballet. I was a ballet dancer in my childhood and he backed that. So I always thought that pe people know Billy Elliot, which is the Northern Ireland. That was my period. So that's being a ballet dancer north of England at that time. That was nonsense, right? So the working classes had no problems with ballet dancers, like um, uh, male ballet dancers, as far as I knew, and I was there, yeah. I, I was that ballet dancer. Um, I mean, obviously, maybe it's based on a true story, but whatever. So no, it was, uh, you, there was no like sense that, you know, oh, you, you can't do ballet because you're a boy. Like, that would be nonsense, like. So it was a tough you know, enough thing. But it, it's, it's toughness that appealed. It was ballet, it was great. Um, but then I got Osgood Schlatter's disease of the knees, which is a, a knee condition. And I was never really able to take it on. So I had this interrupted uh, ballet career. And for 30 years, I always took it that I couldn't really take up any sport or run a marathon or something to that level because of this knee condition. Mm -hmm. And then when I turned 50, so when my mother was 50, the National Health Service phoned her up and said, we will give you a free health check. This is the first time they've done it. They will give a free health check to every woman who's 50, including a breast scan. So she went in and they caught her with a lump on her breast and uh, they caught it early. And after a lot of treatment, it wasn't easy. Um, she survived it and she's alive today. So in my head, I thought to myself, well, when I'm 50, I'm gonna do the same thing. So at the age of 50, which is about three years ago now, I went to the doctor and I said, um, give me the works, everything. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just whatever test needs to be done, let's do it. So the, the doctor did it, and we did the lot, and uh, it was funny, you know, and uh, I was really waiting for bad things. I was waiting for some seriously, I was waiting for a big talking to, yeah. at the very least, you know. So I got the talking to, I was technically obese, uh, about 20 kilos, 25 kilos over. Uh, I might have a heart attack and, uh, and diabetes in 20, 30 years, but to my surprise, had nothing really wrong with me. It was lifestyle. So the doctor said, if you change your lifestyle, you can have a long, fit and athletic, happy life, you know. So I said, oh, fair enough. <laughs> so I started walking into, a, we're here in Belvedere, which is a very famous school, uh, which James Joyce went to, and it has a swimming pool. So I was coming here at um, six in the morning. I don't, sorry, uh, I don't work for Belvedere, I work for Fishamble, the new play company, but the offices are within that, the, the complex, as it were. Mm. Anyway. I started walking past the swimming pool. So every morning at, at half six, I'd go in, and that's when I was most proud of myself, actually. Really out of condition. 
get changed because you can swim with bad knees. So that seemed all right. So I'd, I'd swim from down. And the first time I literally did two lengths, came out exhausted, carried on. Next time I did four lengths, next time I did six lengths, next time I did eight lengths. I was doing this. And then I met this uh, uh, actor called Mags McAuliffe, who uh, has worked with Fish Ambulatory, fine actor. I think she's been with you, actually, Olga. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So she's great. So she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing this. And she said, how much is it? And I said, it was seven euro to drop in. So that's 21 euro a week, you know, and I'm going to feeling great, you know. And she said, well, there's this um, a gym out in, in um, it's called the Westwood out in Clontarf. Mm. It has an Olympic size swimming pool, right? You could go there for the same amount or less. So I looked into membership off peak. It was 55 euro a month. And our children at that time were in a school nearby. So I thought I could drive from school go to an Olympic size swimming pool with a fancy, you know, fancy kit, like, you know, uh, like lovely showers, everything. Yeah. So, and uh, sauna and, I, and, and do all that uh, and come home and go to work, sorry. So I thought, fair enough. And I, I'm basically me. So I've a, a fear of the gym. I had a fear of the gym, essentially out of Thatch Right Britain, 1980s. So I hated that whole free market, pump it up. Again, the crisis of masculinity, it was all nonsense. And I didn't like that private, privatization of everything. So I, but I thought, well, actually, if I go to the gym two times a week, it would be less, cost less than the swimming pool. So I'll go, I'll do that. So I, so I went there and I made myself go three times a week because then I was saving money because I just didn't want to be the person who signed up and then a year later was going, oh, it's on my bank debit, you think, you know, and I've, I've done nothing. I didn't want to be that person. Yeah. And I hated sort of giving them money for nothing. So I started swimming there and they have a gym and the gym came with a free gym program. And so I, said, I thought, well, I can't lose. It's free, you know, as part of the thing. So I took up um, a, a training package, and the, the instructor was very careful to say that it's not a personal training system. They just set up the program, you do the program. So I said, fair enough. Well, I, I took to it like a duck to water. It was hilarious. I really liked this, the structure, being told what to do. The commitment is do it until you're red in the face and sweating, and then do it again. So you go, I can do that. Uh, I have in my work quite a lot of responsibility for a lot of artistic projects with a lot of people involved, but there I don't. I'm anonymous. No, nobody really knows or cares who you are. Uh, that gym has, a, I'm in my 50s, there's a spectrum of ages from 20s to 80s. It's not a competitive gym in that sense. I mean, there are obviously very fit people there, mm -hmm. but there's also people working through disability, people working through uh, pregnancy I've seen, people working through cancer I've seen happen so people are working through whatever they're working through at stages of life nobody cares mm. <laughs> i loved it so i'm now absolutely fitter that i've been 30 years and thoroughly enjoy myself so in terms of that um, masculinity i mean i still i mean i did a drop in tango class last week and that'd be the kind of area i'd go to I in life if i could ever get on to uh, dancing with the stars that would be the absolute ideal yeah which is a, you know that would be where i'd go with that yeah it's actually a good show, Dancing with the Stars. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I I I've seen you because I know Clelly as well, and yeah, she's yeah. doing brilliant. And Johnny Ward would be a good friend of mine as well. Oh yeah, yeah. He's really good. He's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's overdoing though. Tell him to back off. You think so? He's just. He j I watch it with my mother-in-law a bit, and he's just doing the kind of like giving it his all every yeah, time. Yeah. You yeah. know, a little bit of flow would be lovely. But that's what they tell him. You know, Clelly yeah. is doing great. She she's been with Fish Amble. She's worked on Fish Amble at shows, so she's great. So I just want to make the next step and be that person. Yeah. You know? yeah all right. Well, the word's out now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's give it a spin. Oh yeah. Okay. Here we go. Number eleven. Do you have it? No. No worries. Number eleven. The question is: Do you have a role model? Wow. I have people I admire. Um, the way I work is 
I ask myself, what would person X do? So if I'm in certain circumstances and I don't know quite what to do, I think of the people I admire and ask myself, what would they do in this situation? Mm-hmm. So I've got two that immediately ask the question. One would be Veronica Coburn, who runs uh, many uh, projects. She's modern youth theatre. She's a clown. She came out of Barabbas. And every year we uh, work on a thing called Tenderfoot, which is a transition year. So for people listening, that's for 15 and 16-year-olds from the local schools in uh, Tala area of Dublin to come in and make work. And it's a great project. It's really good. And she runs it really well, mm. really, really well run. And she would say, you know, if you work in theatre, you can get very worked up you know, about things. And she would say, well, we're here to do good work. We're here to do good work. So, okay. Mm. So how do we say about doing good work? And we said about like that. So Veronica Coburn, for me, would be someone that I would sort of mentally go to. Um, it's a strange one. I mean, I don't know why, and she's in my mind at the moment, but Megan Kennedy, who's co-artistic director of Junk Ensemble. Mm-hmm. We were working on a new big project for the autumn um, gym swim party at the O'Reilly, which is the one I work with Danielle Gallagher, who's a young theatre maker. But Megan's a dancer, choreographer, maybe because my dance thing, I've got a bit of a thing, like, you know, that uh, I'd go to a lot of dance as well and mm. watch it. I think her, I think she's amazing, both as a, uh, but across the spectrum as a person, as a theatre maker, as a choreographer, uh, a lot of time for her. So, you know, again, I, she'd be someone, do you know that way you get people that you just don't want to let down? Yes. You wouldn't want to let her down. And she doesn't do anything to make you feel in any way bad, but you've got to go, all right, I'm not letting Megan down, so um, what would I, what's the right thing to do, you know, yeah. that kind of thing, you know. Do you, um, to maybe broaden it out, like mm. across, like, say, the industry that we work in, so, yeah. like, you know, theatre, new writing, dance, whatever it yeah, might yeah. be, um, is, is there a commonality of... Um, qualities that you notice you gravitate towards in people or, or maybe people who, who you see and who whose work you admire or that kind of thing i don't know Can you, you might have to focus that a bit i'm that's a quite a broad thing i mean mm. you know there's a lot to be said for people who turn up and do the job i have a theory at the moment i have a theory at the moment that um and this is somewhat reductive uh, i'm not even sure i stand over this right right but that actors can be divided up into at least two groups right and uh racehorses and troopers so racehorses need a lot of work to get them to the starting line you just have to work a lot to get the energy right so that the blinkers are on so that when they hit the track they go bang and they go down the track and, you go, and they themselves don't know how they did it they go oh what was that kind of thing <laughs> and then troopers uh they go troop 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 so in other words they're coming in they're professionals they're doing a job, they arrive on time, they arrive organized, they like everything organized correctly, bang, 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 and they walk on stage and they do the job. And both of them operate, to my mind, to an extremely high level. I'm not saying one is better than the other artistically, mm. but there's a difference of approach. My feeling is I like the troopers. Mm-hmm. I like, I like, like when you're working on new work, to have someone who's organized, they know what they're doing, they're putting it in order, and they're doing a good job, and then when they hit the stage, yeah, they fly, but then, then they home. And, and that's the classic actor at the end of the thing, go out for drinks, well done everyone, we go home. <laughs> and I like that. And there's, there's so many of those that I really have a great time for. At the moment, I've been working quite a lot. People might know Janet Moran. Mm. Janet Moran played uh, Molly Bloom, for example, amongst many, many other roles in a large-scale production at the National Theatre. The Abbey there, so she's very absolutely top of her career, and she is absolute delight to work with. And every single time, every single time, top form. But doesn't matter what the job is, bang in, uh, great job. She knows what they're there for. She sorts herself out, 
sorts the whole her relationship. Great team player, ensemble player, bang, off she goes. So I guess, yeah, there's a rambly sort of answer to that. If you were to put yourself in that, um, into one of those two categories, do you feel like you're, <laughs> you're a trooper or, or the latter? Um, a trooper, actually. I tell you why I'm a trooper. In the end of the day, I think. I mean, I mean, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm caught. You've caught me with my own image because I'm, I, I feel I'm being boxed in now. <laughs> but if I'm going to box myself in there, yeah. So when I was 40 years old, um, I, I um, memorized Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So I memorized the book, right? And uh, I performed it as a five and a half hour live performance in the Fringe Festival Dublin and in the Theatre Festival Dublin and in London, right? And you cannot do that by messing about. You cannot do that by, uh, it's like if anyone's run a marathon, you cannot, I mean, some people can wake up in the morning and run a marathon, right? I've known it happen. But on the whole, you can't. So that took me nine months of every morning uh, getting up and systematically. It's only an hour a day, but every morning for nine months, an hour a day, so that as I arrived towards the uh, performance, I had eight months of work in me, you know, with a month to go. And I suppose what that proved to me was that I could do it. You know, that, that and it, it's not, I mean, human memory is amazing. We know that in the olden times, whole legal systems like the Irish legal system, Brehon Law, or the Bible, or the Quran, these were known by heart and still are to some extent. People can, uh, Homer's work, all of that. So we know people can remember a lot. So the question is, how do they do it? You know, and I don't think you can do that by um, reading it and hoping for the best. So I think I shifted at the age of forty to go and actually I can do that. And so, in terms of playwriting, I prob I probably shifted in my twenties and thirties. I probably would have a deadline. I'd probably ignore it. I'd probably wait till two weeks to go. I'd probably panic. Maybe with a week to go, I'd stay up all night and thrash at it, you know, and, and have the anxiety over that. But it was a way of working. I don't object to it. I mean, that's a lot of people do that. Mm -hmm. Now, not interested in that. Wake up in the morning, put me clock on, one hour's work, done for the day, move on, you know. What's your, obviously, you're probably one of the people in this country who reads the most new writing. Like, that's mm. possibly true. Yeah. How, how do you maintain your own relationship to your own creativity amongst all that? Yeah. Um, Oh, good question. So, yeah, I mean, I would read, uh, Fishamble would receive in the order of uh, 200 scripts a year, which we would go through. Uh, we work with the Fringe on a new writing award where you'd be reading 20 or 30 Fringe shows. Uh, new Plate Clinic is uh, working with people on developmental works and mentoring schemes. Um, so, you know, I don't know what I'd read a year, but it, it could be in the order of 300 plays. Uh, not necessarily in full if I'm working through the reading system, we have a system of readers and so on, but we certainly would read elements of each and every one mm -hmm. uh, that arrives here. Um, do you know, it doesn't bother me. I mean, there's, there's been huge discussion about this. Can you be a good playwright and a good literary manager? Are they exclusive and inclusive? I would just point out that there are certainly good dramaturgs or playwrights who are not good uh, dramaturgs and literary managers who are not good playwrights and ones who are good playwrights and, and it, it just it, it, oh gosh I mean you go with what you love so I mean I'm, I'm, I'm very happy I'm very very happy working with new plays new playwrights all the time mm. when it comes to myself um, hmm, it feels like a shift in the brain so my brain shifts to another place it's coming from another place mm -hmm. uh, and in doing that I'm very happy with what I do it turns out <laughs> that I am the most produced playwright of the last 10 years. Really? Yep, 
the Irish Theatre Institute brought a study. It was completely by surprise. They put up this chart at a display at this uh, conference that Fishamble did actually, and said, "Here are the most." They were talking about the gender stats and so forth. So yeah, said, "Let's yeah, look yeah, at who, yeah, who's yeah. Who, who is writing and who's getting produced." So they put up like, "Okay, so these are the playwrights the last ten years have been produced the most." So it's like a one to ten scale. So or twenty even. So I looked at twenty and I wasn't there. I looked at nineteen and I wasn't there. And after a bit, I was going, "Oh, this is ridiculous, right?" <laughs> I looked at the top, and my name was at the top, and I went, "Oh my God!" Like I'm the most produced playwright in Ireland. But I'm not that famous, right? I mean, you can check me on Google. Uh, if you think of canonical Irish writers, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've been in the, the household name category. So I was looking at it going, oh, what's going on there? And I think partly it's because I'm eclectic. I'm pretty eclectic and I'm relaxed about that. I mean, some writers of people who know, some playwrights are valued for their voice, that there's consistency there. Some writers have felt trapped by their voice over time that they don't no longer, do you know what I mean? Some mm -hmm. people are mining and changing and evolving. A lot of my work is very different one play to another. I mean, I know I'm there because I know what I'm dealing with, I know what the subjects are, and I know how it's come about, but it's really quite varied, uh, and I quite enjoy that. Mm. And yeah, I've come to peace with that. I've, I, I go, do you know what? Yeah, fair enough. Like, the project to hand is the project to hand. That's what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, do you feel like, say, I don't know, do you feel like that's the difference between, say, someone like Conor McPherson is the first one that comes to mind. Mm. He's, he's probably my favourite Irish playwright. Yeah. So, like, someone like him, I mean, what is it, what is it do you believe that, that has him as, you know, if you're talking about, like, certainly living Irish playwrights, he's got to be in the top three in terms of success. Yeah. Like, what is it about his work, you know, from with the literary hat on, yeah, yeah. That, that that has him there? Uh, search me is, is the answer to something. I mean, uh, whatever. See, yeah, Conor, I am... Um, he, he's great. I've met him a couple of times only, uh, and uh, it was very nice to talk to him. I think, he, I think one of the features of the writers of the 1980s is it was the beginning of the drama degrees. Mm. And as far as I know, none of us did drama. So I think he's a philosophy or an English degree or something. That's right, yeah. He does, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't surprise me. And I did an English degree. Michael West did French and maybe philosophy. Uh, Marina Carr was, used to do something else. So you get these writers who are really interesting, who are grounded in uh, not drama, actually. They're grounded in some other thought process construct. Mm -hmm. And I remember him coming through. And I, th I mean, his career progression is one to be admired. Uh, One-hander, two-hander three-hander, getting bigger all the time, very ambitious. I think he, I would say he began to live into his own world. Like in some of his early works, you thought, well, this is the work of a student, you know, uh, is it really real? And he just kept going uh, after that. I mean, I think from the work I've seen recently, I think I saw The Night Alive um, here. Uh, alive, it's very alive, it's electric. Uh, the scenes are just full of like a sense of, um, uh, from moment to moment, anything could happen. A mm. uh, uh, sense of a completely achieved world. I mean, he gets very good actors, quite right too, uh, together. And gets a very good team together. Mm. Uh, the work I've seen. So I think he's he's got a kind of um, he's kind of grown into his own persona somehow as a writer. I think. Hey guys, Tom here. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but uh, here at Headstuff we have a ton of other amazing podcasts. So I'm going to throw it over to Aaron, who is going to insert a digital advert with one of the podcasts that you should be listening to. If you like this podcast, you're probably going to like a ton more on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Who took the bomb? Hey you, tired of turning on the television and feeling like there's nothing there for you? Yeah... Tired of reading the newspapers, seeing the same old pale and stale opinions? Oh God, yes. Well, we have just the political podcast for you. The Sus is the political podcast for the lockdown generation, available on the Headstuff Network. 
as someone who's in charge of, you know, I suppose, you know, Fishamble being the new play company, mm. you know, you do produce by far the most new plays in the country. So, yeah. like, you know, one of your main jobs is to spot new talent. How successful have you been at that? And how often is it that you're surprised at someone who maybe, who really came out of left field that, that maybe you didn't see it coming? Or, or do you generally, like, can identify it pretty quickly? Um, oh, well, I mean, I mean... It's funny, really. Uh, you wouldn't want to know everyone. I mean, if you end up knowing everyone, that you've, you've known too many people. So I, mean, <laughs> I am constantly amazed and delighted by uh, other voices arriving from nowhere. I, I actually particularly like it. You go, who's that like? You know, and then you go, wow, there's another thing over there. Um, I think, uh, so Fishamble um, are an independent theatre company. We uh, celebrated our 30th anniversary last year. The artistic director is Jim Cullerton, and I'm the literary manager, which is full-time, part-time. The entire staff at any one moment is really four or five people full-time, part-time, um, maybe uh, less even. Uh, but we can expand in production, and we do produce new plays that tour uh, nationally and internationally. So that's all mm. good. Um, I think what we've learned over the time is you need to f uh, find virtuous circles by way of uh, finding writers. In other words, th the model that you sit an, in, in your office and you hope that someone's going to post you something and you hope that your ability to read something pays off it can pay off Fishamble produced a very early or first or second play by Marco Rowe came through the post uh, Sean McLaughlin also uh, posted his play in uh, it came uh, via another company who came to us so it can happen mm. but what we we would do things like say look where are the uh, where are the sense of new writing where is where is new writing so fringe Dublin fringe been obvious one so we set up a new writing award the point of that new writing award is to um, is for us to discover those new writers. So I'm reading 30 plays a year at that level. Then you offer people a free course, something like that, with the, for the people you nominate. Mm -hmm. Then you get someone like Eva O'Connor, who came through that. Uh, she's dance background. She's really interesting. Um, interesting. Her company's called Sunday's Child. She's a very vigorous artist. She comes and does a weekend course with Fish Amble. She writes a small little play as part of an exercise. Jim thinks there's something really going on there. We commission a longer play. That becomes a play called Mass and Bricks and that tours. So I think if I was getting across to playwrights, there can be a flow to these things. You know, the Scene Heard Festival is on, which is a mm -hmm. work in progress. A lot of people will be trying to get me or someone from Fishamble to see the work there. We have a new scheme called Duets with our partners, um, Irish Theatre Institute and The Fringe. So you're looking to create a flow for playwrights to be able to engage with and move through. And then if we're lucky to capture them. And sometimes you do very big things. So at the moment, we're doing a thing called A Play for Ireland, uh, which basically asked 300, we asked everyone, but 300 writers submitted ideas for plays. We took on 30 uh, writers at six different venues uh, who all wrote a draft of their plays, supported through Fishamble and other the venues in other ways. And so we have 30 new plays to read now. Uh, we're going to take f six of them and option them. I'm going to produce one at the end of the year. And at some level, We'll do something like that about every five years. Mm -hmm. Not exactly that, because we never do the same thing, but something. And that is, again, us going, rather than you sit at home, write a play that you set, keep sending out and nobody wants to do and you get frustrated with, here is the opportunity. This is what we're looking for. This is your chance. And that way we can uh, have a more successful engagement. Mm -hmm. If um, in the fantasy world where, like, you mm -hmm. know, there's no financial... Um, restrictions. Yeah. What What is the thing that, or the system you would love to put in place that you think would best serve writers in this country? Um, I don't know, and I wouldn't like to pretend to know everything. Um, I think um, 
at a fish amble level, it's a very good question. I think fish amble could be twice as big without mm. uh, undermining its quality. In other words, we could grow to twice the size of what we're doing, and there could be twice as many new plays produced without sort of, you know, going down the pile a bit. You know, there'd be pl plenty there. So we could be twice as big, I would say, easy. Mm. I think within the sector, I suppose, the more uh, tricky areas have been, do we want a venue which is a venue-based home for new Irish writing. And that question is unresolved. And very intelligent people have both sides of the argument. So London people might know the Royal Court, which exists to put on new plays within its venue. Yeah. Pro it, yeah, you'd have a place to go to, and that would be where you go for new writing. Against it, well, which venue and what scale are you working at then? Fish Amble don't have a venue, which means we can open in anything from a 30 or 40-seater to, uh, in all honesty, the likeliest opening size would be like 350, 400 seater. It'd be mm. that kind of size. So we've got a spectrum of possibilities. There's a network of venues. So we don't exactly see why we should lock into one venue when we don't want to always produce in Dublin. We're, we're a national theatre company, at, mm. uh, at least. We want to work with the Lyric in Belfast as well. So it's not obvious to us that we should go to a venue. But the sector might like a venue. Mm. And then you're left with the Abbey. So the Abbey... Uh, founded in 1904, has a famous literary remit. It's, it's part of its remit. It is, there is a, it is a literary venue. It's in its mission. And basically, it, I think with the best will in the world, blinks on and off with regard to that remit. And it has some very bad blinks that we've seen recently, uh, particularly around uh, the um, 2016 programme when they programmed nine male rights and one female, and this broke the way from the feminist movement. So... And the peacock, sometimes it's you know a go-to, sometimes it's not. So in other words, what is the new writing venue? Well, some people say, well, it's the peacock. <laughs> if, if the happy would only commit to it being the peacock. So, mm -hmm. um, and they, I'm sure they have a new, uh, now, you see, this is why I'm, I'm too nice in my older age. Like, so they have a new literary manager. No, they have a new dramaturg mm. called Louise Stevens, I think. She's put in training a new set of programs. So, you know, now she needs a chance to, to see how her programs, just like Fish Animals ones, can evolve to get the new writing out, you know, if that's what they're going to do. So it's always an evolving situation. Mm. Yeah. Right. Let's go to spin. Oh, yeah. I told you, you forget about the numbers very quickly. Uh, number 18. No. No <coughs> worries. Um, number 18. Uh, have you or do you ever consider em emigrating? Well, I am an emigrant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, spectacular. So I sat at home with the children, uh, Juno, daughter, who's 17, and we had spectacular arguments about um, <laughs> ethnicity, uh, country, uh, identity, all of that. And the whole Dublin is, is uh, so fluid and it's so fascinating now. It's a rich, vibrant uh, culture. So technically, I've always, I was always brought up to say that on my father's side, I was Irish-Jewish. So he's an Irish-Jewish from Cabra, which is north Dublin. Uh, born, uh, born and raised in Cabra, and uh, so th there's that background. And he emigrated from Dublin in the 1950s, I think, after the boxing career, and met my mother, and they became teachers. She's a, uh, from Devon, to Devon farm family, and they became teachers together. So I was born in Chester, and my father and my mother both did not impose their own cultural values on us. We, there's a lot of work about Irish emigrants. Mo most Irish emigrants, the majority in the 50s and 60s, are actually female, which is always a really interesting thing. There's those stories there. Um, but he was a bloke, of course, and he didn't go down the road of trying to retain Irishness. Now, he's a proud Irishman, 
he would uh, he celebrate Patrick's Day. He'd listen to Planksty, Moving Hearts, Chieftains. They were all in the house. Like, so there's an Irish nuss, but he didn't sort of have any kind of like, you must remember your roots thing. It was up to us to choose as we evolved. Mm. Um, and when I was um, 18 years old, uh, it was time to apply to universities. And in those days, you could get a state grant. So unlike today, where people are in debt all over the place, in those days, you could get some kind of council grant. Mm. So I applied to five universities in England to do law, which was a terrible mistake because I would have been bored with this. And I quickly realized a mistake and applied to five universities that had cricket grounds. So because I thought to myself, I'll go somewhere where I can sit and watch cricket for three, four years. That'll be great, you yeah. know. And that, in those days, that, that was the kind of thing you did. So uh, I applied to like Birmingham, which has Edgerston and so on. When I realized law was a terrible idea, I needed to go somewhere that, that wasn't law and was somewhere else that I could get a grant to from the state. Mm. Um, so I applied to universities worldwide, and technically I got into Harvard, Sydney. They're actually not that hard to get into. You, you just have to give them $20,000 right. or $50,000 now, whatever it is. Um, but the one I could get into that had a cricket ground was Trinity College, yeah. Dublin. Um, and it had a grant system, which we'll see what happens after Brexit, where because of the north-south thing, it, it, there was a two-way street in terms of accommodating students you know, as, as seen as local students, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So there weren't uh, excessive uh, foreign fees. So that's why I came to Dublin. It's very little to do with that. Um, but I went to Trinity in 1984. And although I lived in London for a year and a couple of other things, I basically stayed. So I am an immigrant. And I find it fascinating. So I've lived here 35 years, but my daughter does, does not regard that as making me Irish. I could have a passport. And with Brexit, I could. And uh, I don't know if having an Irish passport makes me Irish. I kind of no real idea. I'm very comfortable with it all. Uh, I see myself as a Dubliner, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. A Dubliner who likes Ireland, but I see myself as a city person. Um, so, um, so, uh, so she would say, yes, you are an English emigrant. Even, but I'd say, but my dad's Irish, and I've lived for 35 years, which is twice as long as you have, because you're only 17. Yeah. But it doesn't matter, <laughs> as far as she's concerned. She's Irish because she's born and raised in Ireland. But the way we look is a lot of people look at her and say, oh, you Polish or something, you know, because people are looking now differently, you know, and, sh and uh, maybe it's the, uh, it's a strange one. Yeah, it's a strange one. Do you ever think about what your life would have been like if you hadn't come here? Oh, ah, yeah. Uh, when I was, I told you I did a year in London. Mm -hmm. I worked in this place in London, which was uh, basically a, um, a processing uh information processing for medical journals and it was early computers so very very early computers 1988 is the the, the old financial boom uh, thatcher's britain combined with the summer of love so the ecstasy years and stuff like that it was absolutely great like it was a great time to be in london to be young and all that and i figured out within the company that if and it's run by a man called vtech trash and I figured out that if he applied the exact same method he was applying to the medical journals to medieval English journals, surprisingly, he could make money. Then I decided to come back to Trinity, which was more to do with uh, a relationship that I was in, sort of in, a tormented relationship at the time. So I told him I was coming back to Trinity uh, to go to academia and then into the arts kind of thing. Or it wasn't deliberate, it wasn't as that thought out, but that's the way it was going. And he said, you shouldn't, you should be a businessman. You, you should be a businessman. And so I said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going VTech. And he said, yeah, I will give you a quarter of a million pounds sterling to set up the company for th over three years to run that business. And you, you can own the business. Um, so I said, no. Um, um, I said, no. I really deserve that. Um, yeah, um, 
because for one thing, I knew that the business would make money, but it wouldn't actually, it wasn't, um, it wouldn't have been benefit to mankind. So I became aware actually that was not what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I could have been running a large business, be a millionaire in London. Wow. Well, yeah, I would have been working from like six in the morning till ten at night, and uh. I, I probably had multiple collapses. You know. Yeah. That's the way it worked. But I, I, that's, I could have done that. Yeah. Yeah, like what, like you know, being you know, being a a writer, an artist, however way you want to phrase it, and you know, mm. like just the inevitability of like the financial implications of that. Yeah. Like what what is your relationship to that as you've because you know certainly like I'm 25 right, so you're very like willing to kind of like slog it out. Like I really can yeah. like live at a pretty low yeah. level, and I'm yeah. comfortable doing that. I don't need the holiday, whatever it is. Like yeah. you know, but I am like you know acutely aware of you know family marriage house whatever like that might be down the line that you know like yeah w- how has that evolved for you <laughs> lordy how's it evolved for me let's take me first uh yeah so i was in my 20s in dublin i lived a very bohemian lifestyle i uh, there's slightly pre-mobile phones no internet i lived off grafton street with a collective the, the clubbing days were in i did a little job presenting an rte funny enough for a while there um and i used to get up in the morning walk down grafton street and spend the day whatever i liked it was a bohemian lifestyle kind of almost dandy stuff mm. and uh, then I got a job in Project Art Centre like a lot of people do to this day uh, working on a community scheme so it was sort of a way of getting back into employment so for three years I was writing meeting people doing what you're saying like uh, hanging out in my 20s mm. with other people um, it was good times kind of thing and then um, the boom came and the prices came up that went up and the right rent started to go up all of that um, it, 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 sorry it's difficult to explain I mean for, I'm so I was very fortunate. Uh, Jim and myself would always understand we're very fortunate. And uh, in that, Fishamble came through at a time when the Arts Council was able to, and was behind the company model. So there were other great companies that, that came through in that era. Um, Corn Exchange, uh, uh, Bedrock, um, I'm trying to remember the uh, Veronica's company. Um, I'll come back to me in a sec. Mm. But um, a whole rake of companies, you know, and we were able to form some kind of stability slowly. Like, I don't think any of us actually took home any money from it in any way you know till we were 27 28 29 you know mm. but it was possible and gradually the, my role as the literary manager evolved so i suppose if it's sort directly financially i'm in a, a very happy position in that full-time part-time i have the fish ham job which is half a wage basically mm. it's half a wage you need to live on um and even that in the world of the arts until recently we wouldn't know from one year to another whether the company would still exist technically it has of course and we're in a good position relative to a lot of other people but you know you st- you're still precarious uh, and then the rest of my money would come if i could manage through writing uh, playwriting and through working on various projects often as a dramaturg so i might work with a company like anu or something like that which is very enjoyable for everyone concerned uh, so that's the way it's worked i got comfortable with that precariousness with christine my wife works in Oxfam Books on Parliament Street. She has a part-time job uh, managing the books, and we have two children. And we, we got comfortable with that until 2008, 2009. I got, I mean, basically, I used to the idea that I would not know in January if I have enough money for the year, but if I just kept going, <coughs> there would be certain schemes or offers or whatever would come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also teach at the Lear now Academy uh, and the Trinity College a bit as well. It's all very part-time, though. And again, it's, you know, paid by the hour usually something like that anyway uh, the financial crash really blew that out i mean and it was huge anxiety um but i, I like to think we responded well 
um, for one thing, uh, something like Show in a Bag, which is an initiative to, for actors to get their own snorkel work and make money financially, to make money from what they do. That was the whole key to Show in a Bag, mm. that the, the actors owned the work themselves. Mm. That came right out of the crash, because you're going, okay, well, we're in a bad way. We're damaged now. F a fish amber like everyone, not, I mean, across the board was getting cut. Uh, down and down, but we've got a responsibility. So things like the new play clinic came out of that. Uh, you just hope that what goes around comes around. So you work with a lot of people um, to keep that whole thing process going. Uh, but it certainly made life feel terribly unstable. And I would put the arts no higher nor no lower than anyone else. I mean, I remember at that point our son was playing in Fingless for a football team. Mm. And the mums and dads used to bring the kids out. like, And it just depended on what your profession was. So some people, maybe if you, you were a teacher, you could hang in there with maybe a pay cut. But there's guys that were scaffolders. And the scaffolding business went from, like, they had 30 people in the scaffolding business to two of them in, like, two months flat. So it, it was across the board, mm. with the arts being no more, no less. My quip of the day, actually, I'll just finish on the quip of the day. Yeah. My quip of the day at the moment, which I'm really thinking about, is that theatre, fundamentally, is made by people on the north side for audiences who live, audiences who live on the south side. <laughs> that is what theatre is. Yeah. So we're up and around the north side and we're seeing all that. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That <laughs> yeah, belongs yeah. on a t-shirt or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, we've got time to turn it over to you. Okay, here we go. Number 56. No, I'm going to stop soon. Ready? Right? Yeah. Nothing. Uh, number. I should have just said yes. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time. And yeah. then we edited the start. Like, it would be great. Um, 56. If you, uh, so you do have children. Um, yeah. Have you brought your children up with religion? No, absolutely not. So, again, I would say that following the, um, the, the thought process of my parents is up to them to find their way. Mm -hmm. So was, that's all been happy days. I would say that it's quite hard in Dublin because so many schools have a, an ethos. They want to mount Temple, which uh, for our USA listeners is famously the school where you two went to. So it's a school yeah. on the north side. Uh, boys and girls, again, that was important to me, that the boys and girls would be together, that you wouldn't have a son and daughter going to different schools. That's mm -hmm. just the way I was brought up. Um, uh, it's a not fee-paying school. That's important too. I, I principled objections are paying fees for schooling, that kind of thing, even if we could uh, manage that. I mean, there are limitations there. But, you know, that was a choice as well. What, what their opinion, you'd have to ask them. Um, I did. We did have a very nice in terms of religion, where you're going. Oh, look, a bit of a benign hypocrisy isn't too bad. Uh, in that both of them were at St Patrick's Cathedral Choir School, which is by St Patrick's Church of Ireland, and it's a little school for eight to twelve year olds, and it has the choir uh, for boys, especially it has to be said. But mm. there is also a mixed choir, and they're the ones who do all the big concerts in the choir. So Christmas Day, you know, you're down in St Patrick's. So look. Boys singing, and you kind of go, oh, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You sing your Christmas hymns, and I'd have to say, sneakily, me and Christine still enjoy the odd Christmas service. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm full on atheist, but I, there's something about a bit of a Christmas service, you know, it's great. Once yeah. you're all David City, like, you can't fault it. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yo, that was going to be my next question. You are a full on atheist now. Oh, I was always full on atheist. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be an agnostic for a while, I was like, uh, I was agnostic. But then I became known as Gavin Costic, the agnostic, and that that well, that just couldn't happen. So yeah. I had to move to atheism. Um, so so as to stop that. Um, no, I mean I, I'm an atheist, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, for the full reasons. I am I am, however, and increasingly interested in, in the interest of the sacred. I'm very very interested in the sacred. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think there's a feeling of the sacred for us as humans uh, that through drama. Again, if you for me something like the works of Tom Murphy or more obviously perhaps uh, Samuel Beckett's Way of Vigado. These are deeply sacred works, like which, which aren't necessarily saying, and there is a God in the way that organized religion 
or even a god at all, mm -hmm. you know, would have us believe. So, uh, yeah, sacred art is on for me, but uh, certainly atheist. Yeah, it, it, it must have been... W was it funny for you coming coming from England to Ireland? Like, was there a big difference? Like, obviously, that, like, that would have been in the height of Catholic Ireland. Could you sense that and were you like, what the fuck no, are these people about? No, I have to say that, 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 that there, was, there, was a, there was a strange... That was a strange world for me. So I was between 1984 and 1980 in Trinity College, Dublin. Yeah. And I love that. And I would tell you my characters form by it. And I have friendships from that day, and I really liked it. It is and was a bubble. You know, it, it absolute bubble. Uh, so if, if it had gone to UCD, which is further south, the, uni the Catholic University, then perhaps I'd have seen it more full on. Mm. But no, it was a surprise to me. So within things like Ash Wednesday, which would be news to me, where people walk around, young people. So you're quite right. There was 88% church attendance at that time. Right. And, uh, and, and within that church attendance was a lot of young people. That'd be a real surprise in England. So there might be a high church attendance, but it'd be the older people, you know? Yeah. Here, it, no, it was, you're right, it was different, but also because I was in this bubble, uh, and Trinity had a problematic relationship with the state, and one of the things it did to its benefit was become more international. In order to get through, it opened its doors. So the Jewish people would go to Trinity much more easily than UCD uh, for a long time there, mm. uh, certainly international students. So it was an international university with an international outlook um, within this deeply Catholic conservative society. And you know what? Maybe that's why I say that I was more of a, um, a Dubliner, really, than an Irish person, because that was my experience. It was very central Dublin. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, it's, it, it's, it, it's actually... Yeah, it's very interesting even, so at the moment I'm living in uh, my grandmother's house, she passed away in the summer, okay. so it's in the process of being sold, yep. so like I've been there for about three or four months, I probably mm -hmm. can get another two months out of it before okay. I'm booted back into extortionate rent, um, but like it's fascinating being in the house and just like it is laced with crucifixes, yeah. Virgin Marys, yeah. like there were two priests in our family, you know, yeah. so like there's priests every like on all the walls and everything, like it's kind of surreal, and like it was it, it's so it's so funny. I've developed a lovely relationship with uh, like the local priest. I live in Blanchardstown mm -hmm. at the moment, and um, his name is Father Danjo. I'd actually love to try get him on the show, but I feel like he wouldn't be able to sit still. He's one of these a Franciscan monk, so he's yeah. you know in sandals all year round and the robes and all. Oh, yeah. But he's just one of these amazing like he's just an amazing person. Kind of like he does mass in about eleven minutes. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah, yeah. Like he'll just rock it through. But it, it is so fascinating to see like the way in which like she just my grandmother to yeah, say yeah. like just like it was so fundamental to like yeah, her yeah, being absolutely. well again my dad being Irish Jewish uh, but grew up in Cabra w would also talk about that and the power of the priests in terms of jobs in terms of uh, getting on it they would sign letters for you and write things and it was interesting a lot of people I think particularly working class people well they de felt deeply betrayed by the church I can tell you that through the, through the 90s um, but also um, felt that it was authority so mm. if you were into authority, fine. But if you you if you if you, uh, you try to avoid it, if it's all possible, you'd yeah. avoid you know authority figures. Um, yeah. But I do remember what you're talking about. But it wouldn't it wasn't my world. I, I mm. have to say. But certainly going to people's houses and the sacred hearts on the walls and the statues of Jesus uh, and around this area, lots of these little sculptures. Uh, you see all that, yeah. And w have you? So obviously, when something like that goes like that level of fate like 88 yeah. percent and that that's yeah. like wipes to i don't know but let, like below 20 yeah. percent maybe whatever the number is i don't yeah. know it um, where where does that go because like surely that like level of devotion to something can't just dissipate yeah D does it move on to something else well 
uh, again, you know, a uh, big question. Um, you, you make your own choice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that goes back to G.K. Chesterton. So there's G.K. Chesterton, who I don't like at all. He, he says things that sound really witty and clever, but in fact, just purely Catholic dogma, to be honest. Okay. So he does the classic, you know, when the problem is that when people don't believe uh, in something, it's not that they believe in nothing, they'll believe in anything. So that's the official line, is that we, you've got to believe in the nonsense that is the church, because the other nonsense is frankly worse, and we just have a fractured society. Okay. I don't really think it's like that. I think, uh, I think to some extent, I don't, I don't see why we aren't just living for a, looking for a good life, a good social... I mean, when I say good life, a social life, a life together as communities or overlapping communities, uh, and I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting car crash, isn't it? Because you've got that and you've got the increase of capitalism and the world of Deliveroo and the 24 hour, um, you know, you've got to be on your email, you've got to be working. So the monetization of everything, you mm. know, so that's destroying uh, the conservative family relationships as, as well. Mm. Um, so I don't know if anyone wants soulless capitalism as, as the alternative, uh, but I am heartened by things uh, like, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of replacing religion. In a way, it's a liberation. Yeah, put it like this. I think it's a liberation to be able for humans to be more creative about how we live a full and flourishing life. Yeah, there you go. So I like things like choirs. I like drop-in tango classes. I like seeing people go to yoga at six in the morning, mm. uh, you know what it is, and people. So I don't see that as narcissism or selfishness. I see that as people forming enriching communities by and large. You know, um, I like people walking their dogs in parks, you know. So, uh, so in some sense, I do miss, thanks to capitalism, the idea that on Sunday everything is shut and we're all off and we're all taking the day off together. And I liked all that. Mm -hmm. So I do miss a bit of that. But I don't miss, no, a hierarchical, patriarchal church. I mean, again, like, it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a patriarchy. Like, it is mm -hmm. literally a load of men. Yeah. In, in terms of the practice of actually like attending these things, do you see yeah. parallels between the act of attending like a s religious service and attending a piece of theatre? Yeah, so again, this is a much discussed thing that goes back a while. I mean, for me, the, the go-to there is uh, Matthew Arnold, who wrote a book called Culture and Anarchy uh, in the 1880s. And he was honest enough to say that after Darwin, the church had had it. That you could not be intellectually serious and believe in what the church was saying. So he talked about the long, melancholy, withdrawing roar of faith. So he felt that the withdrawing of faith was inevitable, like the sea going out at this stage. But that was a sad thing as far as he was concerned. Now, for me, I might just embrace it and go, happy days. In spite of what I just said, I might go, great. Like, that's, that's that nonsense out of the way. We can do other things. But he felt that was a bad thing. So he is the first one to propose that culture would replace that, that culture could come in and provide a binding yeah, quasi-spiritual um, kind of community thing that would give people a commonality, something to believe in, something to be part of, you know. Mm. So that has been hovering over theatre for at least 130, 140 years that one of its roles has now stepped into that. And I don't mind a bit of ritual, a bit of the sacred. I mean, Anu's themselves are one of those, would generally be agreed to one of those radical companies in Ireland. They are, are named after the triple goddess, as far as I know, Anu. You know, so there's a lot going on in some of those companies that is actually pretty sacred. Mm. So I'm going around in circles. I do enjoy all that. Um, I think it's when there's also, though, the, lib the artist. We, I think we still want playwrights and theatre makers to have a voice that is their voice and not to be always used instrumentally. So I think of it as a, some of us are edgy about this idea that, hey, look, here's this depressed area. We'll call it a city of culture. 
we will use culture to reinvigorate it economically and socially, and that is its function. So a lot of artists would go, eh, hang on there. That can be its function if people choose to do that, but if we're now saying that you're actually saying that this is a replacement for that uh, ritual of life, that, that feels like you're coercing artists into something that they may or may not be comfortable with. Mm. So I'm not sure, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny we were talking about this um, because uh, I didn't actually know that they, they, they you were Jewish and it was funny, I was talking to a friend yesterday. Okay. Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we were talking about I lived in Chicago for a year. Oh yeah, uh, through my studies. Oh, yeah, great place. And yeah, yeah. yeah, brilliant. But I, w- I was talking about, um, to my knowledge, anyway. At the time, certainly moving there, I was like, I didn't. I don't think I knew any Jewish people in yeah, Ireland. Yeah. And um, there's recently in in the the UK in in you know kind of football hooliganism circles, yeah. there's been like a rise in anti-Semitism and stuff yeah. like that. I'm a Spurs fan, Tottenham Hotspur, yeah, yeah. which are like famously the, the Jewish club. That's right. For whatever, what I, yeah, I'm not even sure of the roots of that, but yeah, um, that's where the Jewish. Uh, community came in the 1920s, I think. It was yeah, anyway, North on. London. But but yeah, w- uh, did d- earlier, did like your dad or, or or you were like your family experience any anti-Semitism in Dublin? Great question. The play that I wrote called The Ashfire is all about that. That was my first play. It came back in the late last year. Yeah, yeah. And there's an ambiguity within the Ashfire because the businessman's building burns down. But it has to be said, absolutely not. I repeatedly went to my father about this. They were the first Jewish family in the north side. He absolutely said no, that he, he had not an anti-Semitic experience. He had a very good experience in Dublin. And he said that the language wouldn't be like today. People would be more easy about uh, using insulting words, but more in a free-for-all, give-and-take way that, than a deep-seated anti-Semitism. Now, clearly there was in Limerick, for example, the Limerick pogrom is a noted historical event Mm -hmm. but you're just asking about my dad and the answer is no and for me growing up in my father who's jewish the answer is no but it has to be said i was talking to juno recently and she said that it is anti-semitism bad it's sort of ill-informed weirdy so as a spurs fan this is weird hilarity thing so you'd have opposition fans hissing like gas chambers that's a famous sort of thing and at some level you know what you can take that's kind of funny i mean i was watching with a jewish friend of mine i was watching a play People don't see anti-Semitism. I was watching this restoration comedy, right? And it's got this Jewish character in who's a moneylender, a mm. greedy moneylender. And I turned to her and I said, you do realise this? We do, that is, I am seeing this. This is an anti-Semitic work. And nobody, it was in the Abbey years ago, no, nobody in the Abbey would have seen this as that. It's just, that's the Jewish guy, you know? And she said, yeah, but, and she's a big political campaigner, sorry. She's a really serious person. And she said, yeah. I said, are you not offended? And she said, not really. Like, this is not serious or something so there are oh god it's a very complex world mm. there are some serious things juno however daughter thinks it is coming back so she is hears it more now uh in dublin and uh, that's her reality and she says she partly thinks this because like you talking to me it's a fairly invisible ethnicity so people tend not to say racist things uh, around africans unless they're particularly aggressive because they can see that the african person is african or something like that it's a choice mm-hmm. people don't really see jewishness visually so you can uh, so i have not experienced much i mean and again if i have it's really naive stuff like really they're not even thinking it's the way that perhaps travelers uh would find that people would use off the cuff remarks by use of the word something like don't be a tinker or something mm-hmm. or uh, knacker drinking or something like that mm-hmm. and they're not thinking about travelers do you know what i mean it's yeah. a linguistic thing now that's not to say it's right or you can't think about it or bring it up or discuss the thing but it, I don't know it's deep uh, so any experience I have anti-Semitism is not deep in that way in my experience however 
asked Juno and she says no she thinks it's back mm. right we've yeah. got time for one more spin uh-huh. okay. go for it let's do it I've got none is that a record uh, yeah. having none no you're not the first person yeah. to whitewash uh, let's see what we can do for you here number two no okay sorry it's alright uh, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert oh yeah well I'll give you a short answer to that yeah. one of my great friends of all time is Irene Kernan she goes back to the Trinity stage we've known each other for 30 years we owned a house together at one point a tiny little house by the five lamps Mm. And she said, she said of me, she said, Gavin, you're a quiet person who chats a lot. Okay. I was so happy with that. Yeah. I totally take that. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I actually know exactly what she means. Yeah. Um, yeah, how do you find your own space? Do you enjoy it? Um, me, personally, um, yeah. Uh, I like it. I was thinking about the gym. I think I find that, that solitariness very... Uh, pleasant you know and that dedication I, I i i am though at the end of the day i am social i'm a flanner so you'll hear a lot of people say look i'm who am i to question other people's experience but they say about the writer they're isolated they're working on their own they never see that's not that nonsense like no, you, you do enough playwright it's only a 20,000 20 30,000 words to write a play it depends on your process right mm-hmm. but i mean an hour a day see you fine frankly mm-hmm. uh, thackeray who wrote tons of novels he didn't do more than three hours a day mm. so i would be much more do me hour, go out. I'm very happy when I'm working on a project. I'm most happy in a room, a rehearsal room, four, five, six people um, on the streets, running into people. I, I'm pretty social, you know? Mm. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't play the isolated artist card in my case. Yeah, does, what, like, does the idea of, say, um, you know, something like a week in Anna McCarrick, like that, that kind of thing to just be with you and your work? I wouldn't mind, and I'm prepared to say I'm full of contradictions because quite alternatively, I was up around the Scottish Highlands and Ireland's a while there. If you told me I had to live on my own in Scottish Ireland, a little bothy, I'd be so happy. <laughs> but maybe it's the idea of it. Maybe after two days, I'd be going mad. Yeah. But I mean, the, the idea of... I, I mean, I'm... Again, in terms of the, you know, the talk of the day, the spiritual, secular, I am interested in the monastic existence and I suppose I will go for it, like, and say the monastic existence for men. I'd, if I'm an older man and, and, you know, things have happened and I'm on my own, I'd be quite interested in some kind of communal living. So it would be communal, there's the answer. Mm-hmm. But it'd be communal in maybe, I don't mind a silent order. If it were the case that I would get up and write for an hour and then I would garden, it, it, that doesn't appeal to that to me. You know? mm. Interesting. I kind of, kind of hope that happens. <laughs> not, not to wish your life falls yeah. like. But, but there are more communities like that than you think, especially up around uh, Hans Hans way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the female counterpart would be, and it's strange because I've said all the way along that I think you know men, oh, my experience has been male and female together, but a little bit of me that I, uh, the, the monastic uh, life uh, appeals certainly. Mm. Yeah, I, like I love that. Like I, I, I frequently go like to Donegal for like say two weeks, mm. and I really. Like, I, w- I will go a couple of days without yeah. talking to a person. I find myself talking to myself a lot more. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, because we're getting to an end, so I'll finish off uh, mm-hmm. just, for example, I think the, the happiest... The way I put it with my wife was, if the last seven days of my life were this, I would be ha- so happy. And what happened was, myself, as my son, Connor, he finished his junior cert, and he asked to go hill walking as a treat. So that was great. It was not imposed on him. Uh... I said, fine. So we walked Hadrian's Wall. So we walked Hadrian's Wall, two of us, uh, east to west, stayed in little hostels, little uh, pubs, uh, got up in the morning, walked along the wall. Uh, it was 
fabulous. So that's the sort of thing, you know, and that was right in that zone of seven, eight days. Copy a couple of copies of books. We had phones. There was no rules about phones. It was great. There was no kind of like, oh, we're going to do this. It was, but it was just natural that, you know, at the end of the day, you might check in. Really, really simple, you know. Yeah. Nice food. That was great. So, yeah, that stuff appeals to me. That's amazing that your son wanted to do that with his dad. He wanted to do it once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, no, and he would do it again. But, he, but he, you know, he really, no, no, we were perfectly happy. I mean, uh, we, we have an ability to have a companionable silence, so that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I walked quicker than him up hills. We got tired quicker. He walked quicker than me downhill. And we, gra- gra- if you're walking with someone over long distance, it's irritating to try and keep the same pace. Mm. So we gradually allowed that we would reconvene. So long stretches, we just slowly ease out from each other, reconvene. So wow. it's all lovely like that. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately, uh, I said, you know, he'd be interested in doing it again, but his first choice now, which I utterly approve of, would be really to get some friends together. So it'd be more like, and he has done sort of things like this, but a bit different, you know, people his own age. And I'm just like, go right back to the thing about LARPing. Yeah, great, do that, you know, yeah. One final question oh, for yeah. you, but um, what, it, what what's the best lesson you've learned about parenting? Uh, it's, it's, um, yeah, well, it, ch- it, well, it changes. I mean, you know, it's, there's been some tough years as well, and I think that um, you always you always caught a little bit by surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, my joke, my running joke, is there's only so much you can teach, which is like how to tie your laces, if that, how to cross the road. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so it's it's. Um, I think um, with. You just keep going, and we're quite um, lucky in the sense that myself and Christine are still together, you know. And I think, um, and so we're all going along. I think, uh, I think it's the if there happens to be a situation where there are two parents, it's actually that conversation which is key. If the two of you can just keep talking, and sometimes it is tiring, and a lot of it, I mean, people who are parents will know, a lot of it is. Oh, you, you're going out Tuesday, do you need the car? Oh, okay, well, there's an exam on that time, so somebody needs to do that, so mm-hmm. there's this continuum. So if you can keep the conversation going with your partner, if that's the situation you're in, mm-hmm. then parenting becomes more manageable, you know? Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's like anyone. Uh, listen. Mm. Just just listen to them, like, because when kids are young, you project onto, my son's brilliant, he's going to be uh, this, that, the other, you know, yeah. all these other things. Yeah, it's all true. But if you if you start to listen to your children, like the earlier the better, then you can start to sort of hear, oh, this is what they're really trying to do. So uh, my view of it, for what it's worth is, is I'll finish with an anecdote. Mm-hmm. So I was at a workshop once and someone said, um, uh, you know, playwriting would be like giving birth, like there's nine months of not much followed by screaming agony and there's a play. And I <laughs> thought about that and I said, uh, no, I've seen my wife give birth twice frankly and I'm quite prepared to say that it's nothing like writing a play they are <laughs> utterly different experiences right however maybe writing a play maybe is like bringing up a child so when the child is very young you decide you know that it's going to play for Arsenal you're going to play the cello um, they're going to uh, have a degree in theoretical physics you know mm-hmm. this, this is the vision and then as the child grows up the child starts to indicate what they want to be and your job moves from being that to facilitating that so in the same way with play funny enough is you start to look, look at it and go well what does this want to be mm-hmm. rather than what did i set out to do with it you know yeah. and so similarly with children um it, it, at best i suppose is is listening to them about what th- they are trying to evolve mm. through yeah there you go that'll do 
That's good. Okay. <laughs> Although I do wish you didn't pick Arsenal as your example. Oh, yeah, sorry. As yeah. a Spurs fan. He's, he's an Arsenal fan. <laughs> oh, really? We've been to Arsenal. Yeah, oh, yeah. I never want to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin Kosick, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I know there's loads of um, bits coming up between Fish Amble and any of your own oh, projects, yeah. so maybe tell the people where they can see your bits and bobs. Well, absolutely. Come to the Fish Amble website. We, d- we absolutely do have plays on tour. Hockey Gregory by Colin Murphy coming out on tour now. Uh, all the work of Pat Kinnevan, notably the new play before, but also Silence underneath uh, Forgotten, all on tour. Um, a play for Ireland, I'm delighted to say, should be on a major tour towards the end of the year and we'll be able to name names uh, in the near future. So that's all looking really great. And the one I'll uh, come back to uh, to end with is I'm very enjoyably working with Danny Gargan, uh, who's uh, uh, your, uh, of your own generation, Tom, mm. and we formed a partnership to do a very large work to be directed by Louise Lowe in co-production in the O'Reilly in the autumn. It's currently called Jim Swim Party, so that's one to watch out for. There you go. Excellent. Can't wait to see it. Okay. Gavin Kosick, thanks so much for playing personality bingo. Cheers, Tom. So guys, that was the amazing Gavin Caustic playing personality bingo. Gavin, if you are listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. It was a real pleasure to sit down and pick your brain for over an hour. As I said, guys, go and check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash personality bingo. And go on, be sound, throw us a fiver, two euro, whatever you can do. It makes a huge difference to us in the making of this show. And it's massively appreciated if you are someone who can do it. If not, no worries, the show will come regardless. But enough of that, enough of my begging. I hate that part, but it is important to say it. Guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to Aaron Lindsay for editing, mixing and producing this podcast. To the wonderful Connor Nolan for his gorgeous artwork. To Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for their brilliant theme music. And as always, to the boss men, Alan, Bennett and Paddy O'Leary for keeping the lights on at Headstuff HQ and having us aboard the network. Go check out some of the other amazing Headstuff podcasts. Uh, they are deadly across the board. Uh, I don't think there's any shit ones, which is uh, quite something to say. And and uh, we will see you next week when Anya O'Neill plays Personality Bingo with Tom Moran.